bad and bullshit. Welcome back to the Bad and Bitchy Podcast. I'm Erin. I'm Bailey. And I'm Erica. So guys, it's been a minute. What's up? I'm running a half marathon tomorrow. Wow. So that's ambitious. This is what sobriety does to you. All of a sudden you're like, I think I'll just knit and run marathons for the rest of my life. (laughs) (laughs) So that's me. Wow. Um, I've been struggling trying to find the perfect uh, millennial pink nail polish. Ooh. It's hard. I've got a I've got a similar millennial pink on my toes. Oh, you can't see because my feet are all like a weird color. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> Did you almost fall? I almost fell off the chair. What's oh, new with God. you, Erica? Um I have a new social media assistant. Yay! Yay! Yay. So shout out to Katie. Um so Katie uh, Katie works at the gym that I go to, hmm. um, and so she mentioned to me once that she was interested in, like, contributing some of her labor, and I was like, cool. So I met with her, we got things together, uh, we got on Slack, yada, 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 and so I was like, okay, honestly, at the back of my mind, I'm thinking of already thinking of ways to pay you. And she's like, no, 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 that's fine. And I was like, no, it's not okay. Let's not do an ebony. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So (laughs) if you guys want to contribute to Katie's pay, I'm all (laughs) ears. Hashtag give your money to women. (laughs) Oh, all right. Let's get started with this week in feminism. So we're going to start with one of my favorite people, it seems like. I feel like you have feelings. Sophia Amoruso. Yeah. And uh, her uh, girl boss movie? Yeah. Well, it's yeah, it's like a show on Netflix. Okay. Like a 13-part show. I tried to watch it. I watched the first episode, and it was horrible. And I hated the character. I couldn't watch it. I had to stop. Okay, like, so, her. so Netflix has this girl boss show uh-huh. that it's starting, mm-hmm. I'm assuming. Has it started already? Yeah, it came out the same day as Dear White People. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Oh, but I didn't That's care. That's an interesting contrast. <laughs> <laughs> I guess I didn't care. Because <laughs> Dear White People was, was really good, by the way. I, I recommend it wholeheartedly. But carry on with Sophia. Yeah, so basically Netflix made the decision to bring Girl Boss the book to life uh, because high-flying females are generally underrepresented on screen. Um, They're just picking up anybody, aren't they? Basically. Because wasn't, I mean, let's assume that this was, (laughs) I don't know, at least two years in the making. Two years ago, Nasty Gal was going downhill. Yeah, so basically, for those people who don't know, Sophia Amoruso was the founder and you know, CEO for a while of Nasty Gal, a now bankrupt website um, that uh, sold kind of ripoffs of other styles. Kind of. of. It didn't start that way, really, 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 really. Bebe. 
That's what I used to think of them as. You know, Bebe. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, yeah. You Bebe. know, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Bebe was hot in the nineties. I had it's so true. many With rhinestone Bebe <laughs> shirts. shirts. Wow. So many. Wow. So many. With my FC FC UK French oh, Connection yeah. UK shirts. FC UK. I, I used mean, to have one of those. yeah. The thing about the it being like an underrepresented, like young women are so underrepresented on screen, is that this trope of a young woman is actually not underrepresented on screen like she's a poor rich white girl um who rejects her parents money and so is gonna like go it her own way so she like shoplifts shit all the time but it's like like lena dunham was the same character they're whining they're spoiled and then they want to like do it on their own and then so it's like you know this hero's journey of like how she comes to be successful on her own by like selling shit online. I don't know. Yeah. While finding herself, by yeah, the way. Yeah, oh, of course. While she finding had to her find voice herself. and her identity. Yeah. Her, her boho chic identity. <laughs> yes. They're yes. always, they're like, it's like the manic pixie dream girl meets, I don't know, milk money or something. That's what, <laughs> and that's what ruined Coachella. Yeah. To yeah. be honest. Yeah, Coachella. Yeah. yeah. So Nasty Gal was founded in 2006, and it started as an online retailer of vintage clothes on eBay. Um, mm-hmm. Eventually, the the uh, eBay store just got too big, um, so Emma Russo decided to kind of go on her own and make an actual company out of it, which came, became Nasty Gal. Um, and it by 2013, it had accumulated annual revenues of nearly $100 million, which is quite substantial mm-hmm. and, like, pretty good since she, it was, like, vintage clothes to start off with. Mm-hmm. And she, as you said, Bailey, like, rejected her parents' money. Um, so she became known as the Cinderella of tech. Um, no, because Cinderella never had money. But anyway, I carry on. (laughs) And yeah, so, uh, it's very, very rags to riches. Yeah, I mean, this is what this whole thing is, like this rag to riches story. Like Lena Dunham saying she's the voice of the generation or whatever it's like. A generation. Oh, a generation. (laughs) Doesn't matter which one. Yeah, exactly. It's just... I don't know. I've seen this story before. Also, her whole thing is like, I feel like she kind of was at her height. <coughs> Sophia Amoroso, not uh, not what's her face that I'm talking about. Sophia Amoroso was like at her height in the days of Kelly Cutrone and mm-hmm. like The Hills. And so there was kind of this whole <coughs> movement of like girl boss, which I also fucking hate that name. I too. hate it too. That's a completely different Ugh. issue. It, it, it totally just undermines the seriousness yeah. of women actually toiling at their business. Yeah, names. and yeah. so it was like, you know, this Kelly Catrone thing of like, don't cry at work and like, you know, pull up by your bootstraps and stuff. I don't know. I'm, I'm sorry. Okay, as a, as a business owner, I want to create a workspace where people can cry at work. Sorry. I mean, mm-hmm. I'm not saying that they should be blabbering in a meeting, but my God, like this, this let's not have emotions at work because we're completely different. We're not actually people at work. We're machines. And when it's ridiculous. And when the boss is like an evil maniac who's making people cry, like Kelly Catron was making people cry. She made that poor Elsie cry about seven times on the show. Well, (laughs) okay. But I'm like, you know what? I'm team Elsie. Yeah. (laughs) With her mascara tears. Oh, I'm gonna go watch. I'm gonna go watch The Hills tonight. I gotta watch. Now I want to watch The Hills. Thanks a lot. I always like Whitney. More rich white girl problems. Is it Whitney? Yeah, Whitney. I liked Whitney. Whitney's beautiful and successful. I feel she is. I feel like she, at the back of her, she's the one who was just. 
you know, doing her thing yeah. along the line, yeah. along yeah. the line. Yeah. And she wasn't as flashy as everybody else. I feel like Sofia Amoroso is that flash. She's yeah. a flash in the pan. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And to think that Netflix would choose her instead of like the Spanx founder. Have you heard the Spanx founder, Sarah? Oh, gosh. Oh, gosh. Oh, gosh. No. Now I forgot her name. Anyway. It's fine. We'll find it. We'll find it. And I'm sure somebody will Google. I'm doing it right now. Oh. <laughs> um, so, Sarah yeah. Blakely. Sarah, Sarah Blakely? Yeah. Have you heard her story? Have you heard how she quit her job in like, I think she was a, a she was a salesperson at, in, on some level. Quit mm-hmm. her job. Was so invested in it. She like went above and beyond in terms of. <laughs> how she got attention for this brand that hmm. nobody wanted to buy. Hmm. I, I I really do recommend that story. And they could have opened it up with that story. Oh, but no, no. They decided to profile a woman who abused other women at her workplace. Yeah. That yeah. doesn't sound very feminist to me. Yeah. Yeah. It's... Or empowering. Yeah, so actually, um, Amoruso, after she declared bankruptcy... She's now in the second phase of this girl boss branding where she held a conference earlier this year about girl bosses. I think she should lose the girl boss branding. Like, let's start there. It's infantilizing. It is infantilizing. It's stupid. It's just a stupid hashtag. I feel like we've moved on from this cute little, Yeah, girl power. Girl power. We've, We've evolved from that. I think we can let that go. Um, yeah. Uh, although pink pussy hats would make you think differently. Well, I feel <laughs> I, like I, she just got lucky when uh, Trump called uh, Clinton a nasty woman because all of a sudden people wanted, people were happy to say nasty again because it was like this like Janet Jackson. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Spotify reported some like astronomical like 2000% increase <laughs> in like nasty. <laughs> Yeah. So actually, um, in the opening remarks of this uh, ne- girl boss rally uh, that uh, Emma Russo held earlier this year, she oh says gosh, she had a rally. Oh. You no, know, it was a well, it was a conference, but like oh that's what it was called gosh. or something. Um, she says, "I'm going to start by telling you what girl boss is not. It's not a book. It's not a new Netflix series. Girl boss is. is a feeling. It's a philosophy." It's a way for women to reframe success for ourselves on our own terms for the first time in history. Oh, my God. (laughs) Erica just eye-rolled so hard. It's so Ivanka, isn't it? I actually, who was I listening? Damn it. Oh, I know. I know. Oh, sorry. (laughs) I know the podcast I was listening. It was um, 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 Friends Like These. Yeah, with friends like these. Yeah. With friends like these, with um, Anne Marie Cox. Anna Marie Cox, yeah. Yeah. So she was talking to I don't know somebody. I I can't. I honestly can't remember who it was. But basically, what this woman was talking about was this rebranding of feminism as a sort of um, luxury item. Hmm. Oh, no, actually, I came up with that. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> She was talking to Brandy Jensen. Thank you, Brandy Jensen. So, but basically what Brandy was saying was that um, with your Sheryl Sandbergs, with your Ivankas, etc., that feminism is becoming out of reach 
I guess, from its original hmm. core value. Doesn't feel so grassroots anymore. It doesn't, right. Yeah. It doesn't feel so grassroots anymore. I would agree with that. And I would say that it's now a luxury item. Yeah. Totally. Totally. And this is an example when Netflix, whoever decided that this was a good idea and they don't bring in, you know, people like steeped in A, feminist thought, B, mm-hmm. in, in, in business thought, et cetera, et cetera, these are the missteps that they make. I think this is a big misstep for them. Yeah. yeah. Um, there's so many. And I think in that article that, we ha- that we're citing right here, I think uh, the author talked about Madam C.J. Walker. Why couldn't we do something on her? Or Oprah. Or, mm. or Oprah's probably been done so many times, though. Mm-hmm. Or other women founders who actually, this is from The Economist, right? This, this article, I believe? Yeah. Okay. They're actually better representatives of what that rags to riches story is. Yeah. And the fact is, it's true. A lot of female entrepreneurs aren't entrepreneurial. Mm-hmm. They mm-hmm. have family money or they're, they have husbands. Yes. Mm-hmm. And when you have a husband and a boyfriend who could at least front your living expenses, mm-hmm. i.e. if you live with him, mm-hmm. you've already got a leg up. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And, and we need to recognize that. And that's what Netflix when they're putting this stuff out there, doesn't take into account. Yeah. Well, and it's just so, like, like navel-gazing to be like, oh, you know, this is a revolutionary voice of our time. You know, like, the, the, it, it's a feeling where we can set how women feel for the first time in history. It's like, what are you talking about? Do you know history at no, all? Have you read a history book? <laughs> so, Bailey, tell us about the show. Well, okay, so like I said, I only watched the first episode, but basically she is is bad at her job. She works in a shoe store, and she's so, like, dismissive of the owner's, like, rules. She shows up late all the time. I'm, like, late and hungover, and she was, like, eating a sandwich, like, at the, at the desk of the <laughs> shoe store. And then the woman was like, well, your break's not till this time or whatever. And she's basically just like, fuck you. I'll do what I want. And then the woman's <laughs> like, well, you're fired then. And like Eric like, Cartman, oh. everybody. Yeah. <laughs> fuck you. I'll do what I want. Yeah. So she gets kicked out of her job at the shoe store. And then uh, she, like, goes and she, she steals a rug. She, like, she walks by this, like, street vendor and takes a rug and just takes it into a park and sleeps in the park. But we then she brings <laughs> – I'm actually doing a horrible job rehashing this. She also brings the stolen rug to dinner at a very fancy restaurant where her father is. And he's like, what's that? And she's like, it's my new home. She, like, fucks some dude that she's friends with in a band. I don't know. It's it's a terrible show. That, that, that's, that's tropey. So it's super tropey. It's Rotten super Tomatoes has given it a 30% approval rating. Yeah. It's it's awful. It's truly awful. Why do we, why do we keep... Um, why do we... Uh, Sophia Amoroso, after all that's come out... Why do we still hold her in high esteem? Well, we don't. That's a good but question. But you know what I mean. That is a good question. It's the it's it's the same thing as Lena Dunham. Like, why do we have this like obsession with these like infantile white rich girls who want to pave their own way? Like, I don't deny that like Lena Dunham has some story. talent. She just has no yeah, awareness. Yeah, she, yeah, definitely. 
it is some kind of like coming of age thing. I don't know, like a coming of age story, but that only some of us know about. So you should have had that when you were fifteen. Yeah. Well, okay, so that's the thing is that like when Girl Boss the book came out, it was a few a couple of years ago, mm-hmm. and that was the point where I started being over her whole thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but so many women that I know that read it loved it. And having read the book, it was basically like touted as a business book mm-hmm. for women. I was going to say, is it is it the millennial answer to Lean In? Yes. Ooh, but, good one, yeah. But it's basically common sense advice. So it's not tell your boss to fuck off and roll into work when you feel like I need sandwiches at the desk. That's not the advice? I, no. <laughs> not in so many words. That's what she's acting like her whole thing is. Yeah, it's, it was a lot of common sense advice. Okay, okay. That I guess a spoiled rich girl needed to learn. Can I just say one thing? Yeah. She photographs well. Yeah, she does. She, does. she styles really mm-hmm. well yeah. and let's not and I'm bringing this up because it's a look mm-hmm. I mean this is media right mm-hmm. we're, we're all in media here um it's a look yeah she has this look I was looking at pictures of her I was looking at the nasty gal mac thing mm-hmm. and I was like oh I get it on like that level yeah yeah is that I can see why she's enduring Mm-hmm. She has the look. Yeah. She and just like you said, the millennials answer to Cheryl Sandberg's lean in. Mm-hmm. It's true. It's her. Yeah. yeah. So if you're like a college student trying to figure out what your way in right. the world, then it makes total sense to you. Yeah. I say read Spex, not Nasty Gal. Well, I'm excited. Spex is still a company. I'm just saying. Jen <laughs> Jen Ag, uh, a restaurateur, just came out with her book. I hear oh, she's a real yes. bitch, and I want to read that one oh, too. Really? Yeah, because that's kind of I think a reflection of gender in the restaurant industry. Yes. So I'll, yeah. I'm interested yes. to read that one. Very much mm-hmm. so. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Well, what's next? We're now we're going to talk about. <laughs> The, like, curve of the week. Well, the various curves of the week. Melania Trump and her first overseas trip. Okay, so <laughs> this week, um, Donald Trump finally left the country. And Went to gave, Saudi Arabia. Yes. And, but he didn't leave the news cycle. No. But this is not about Aww. Donald. It's not about Ivanka. No, it's about Melania. We haven't talked much about Melania. Right. Because she doesn't really do a whole lot. Yeah. She's in New York. Over, you Standing. know, parenting Baron. Having cheekbones. Having cheekbones. various angles. <laughs> <laughs> so Melania Trump accompanied Donald Trump on their first overseas visit. They went to Saudi Arabia. They went to... Italy. Italy. Brussels. Brussels, too? Now they're back in Italy. To Israel. Did yes, they, they did. They did mm-hmm. go down to Israel. But this is more about the Saudi Arabia part of the trip. So Robin Gavan of the Washington Post, who I think is one of the best um, fashion writers out there. And this quote that I'm going to read here um, is going to tell you why. So the choice of her clothing that Robin Gavan is is referring to is Melania Trump wore this um, long black dress that covered up all of her, Angles. everything. 
bits. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to say bits, and then I was going to say lady bits, and then I was like, we all cover lady bits when we dress. Okay. So, <laughs> so anyway. Um, and it had, she had that big, ugly gold. gold belt. I hate that belt. Oh, really? I was into the belt. I don't hate the belt in concept. It's the size. Yeah. I think it's disproportionately She looks like large. a gangster's wife. <laughs> like, she looks like she belongs in The Sopranos. Oh, it is a, it's a little hey. gaudy. It's a little gaudy. Although I happen to be, like, really into 80s gaudiness. Can we just stop here and talk about her love of the wide belt a la Michelle Obama? She does mm. love a wide belt. Yeah. yeah. Remember Michelle Obama in the early years was wearing, <laughs> in 2009 to about 2011, was all about the wide belt? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Like... Michelle's speech, she stole something. Okay. So Robin Gavan um, talks about this outfit. And let me read a quote from her. To a Western eye, the choice seems to pay, seem to pay homage to the aspects of Saudi society that confine women instead of emphasizing the broader world that is available to them. In the First Lady's own social media, she made a note of the great strides being made towards empowerment of women in Saudi Arabia, which seems like quite a stretch in a country where women cannot drive, guardianship laws are enforced, and clothing serves as a form of patriarchal control. She, like the president, may not have come to Saudi Arabia to judge or tell others how to live, but whitewashing social inequality in a tweet is another matter entirely. In, this, in that context, her black jumpsuit became a combination of passive approval and transactional acceptance of clothing as a form of imprisonment. Hmm. Bam! That's why you read fashion writers. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and... And it's true to at the at the beginning, if you look at I, I saw when she came out of Air Force One and was walking down. First of all, I thought, ooh, that belt. It's a little bit it's disproportionately large. Yeah. <laughs> Too large, in my opinion. Um, but I I got I got the the idea of a chastity belt mm. on some level right, when I saw it. And I saw the black jumpsuit, which was not form-fitting, for example. Mm-hmm. And I thought, hmm, that's interesting. I see that she's, you know, she's accepting certain prog- protocols or whatever. That's great. That's fine. However, it is interesting to note that... Um, on the night of the Saudi, of the, like, I guess they have a reception yeah. or whatever, she was wearing, like, this fuchsia. Yep. A oh, re-macra yeah. gown. A re-macra. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that one. <laughs> Sorry, I'm looking at it right now. Um, a, fuch- a fuchsia cape-like uh, long gown, long-fitted gown. And so... I found it interesting, number one, that she wore this cape because it, you know, you think flying, but you also, when you think flying, you think freedom, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I, I also, I found it interesting that it was fuchsia. Hmm. And 
fuchsia. I just wonder if fuchsia is some sort of diplomatic color for her because she wore this at one of the debates too. She wore a fuchsia Gucci hmm. Gucci top. But basically what I'm saying is that it's interesting that she chose that point to sort of stand out hmm. in a room full of men. Mm. Yeah. And I, I just found it interesting as to building an idea of who she is. Right. It's inter- that's an interesting um, point to make because, like, very rarely do women want to stand out in a boardroom. Ooh, yes. Because, you know, you don't want to be the only person in the room wearing color. Especially in, yeah, like, standing out with your fashion choices because I think you'd be, I would be worried that I'd be seen as, like, flighty or, like... Attention-seeking. Yeah, or, like, bimbo or, or you know. Yeah. I remember being in an elevator... And at, at, at my former job in the public service. And honestly, I was wearing, it was, it was around this time, and I was wearing like a kind of tangerine, a light tangerine blouse, mm-hmm. and it had ruffles around the neck. It was love. it is lovely. I still mm-hmm. have it. Mm-hmm. Nice silk, you know, whatever. A woman got into the elevator with me. And she said to me, she said, wow, that's bright, isn't it? And I said, yes, like your countenance. <laughs> I answer back, people. Um, but yeah, it's, it, it was this way of her trying to belittle my choice because I, I dared to stand out. Mm-hmm. So I, what I'm trying to say is I totally agree with you. And I think it's just reinforced, especially by other women. Yeah. Mm-hmm. This is making me think of uh, when Rihanna was in Abu Dhabi mm. and she wore that black jumpsuit to the mosque. Mm-hmm. You know, remember this? And it, now that also had a head covering, um, but it, she did the big gold accessory too. Mm. Yes, yeah. she did. Oh, yeah, that's right. She did. Yes. Yeah. I love that jumpsuit. Um, I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm kind of. I'm on the fence about this writer's assertion about how, like, you know, these this clothing is like a passive approval and acceptance of clothing as a form of imprisonment. I don't know. That feels a little judgy to me. Like, there might be Saudi women who want to wear that. Like, I don't know. I don't know. It, I think. I think. I think what she's saying is that in Melania wearing it. Mm. compared with the tweet, if we take it all into context, mm. then it, it, it seems that Melania is just uh, rubber stamping that kind of what, what she called um, whitewashing social inequities. Right. Yeah. And there's an interesting... Like, if you look at the way Melania is also dressed, she, she loves her... She loves her straight lines and her mm-hmm. angles, mm-hmm. and that's a very composed and controlled look. That's true. Yeah. So, as as Robin Gavan says, her her clothes speak to fashion's usefulness as protective armor and perhaps a negotiating tactic. And Michelle Obama was excellent at using clothes as 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 kind of like this negotiation tactic. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know. When I think I think you tweeted this week, Erin, when she was in when Melania was in Italy, you're like, how come she didn't wear an Italian designer? 
Yeah. She well, she de- deplaned wearing a Dolce and Gabbana jacket, jacket, but she was wearing Louboutin, Louboutin shoes. shoes. And you're kind of like, and I think I tweeted back at you. I said Michelle would never have done that. No. And she didn't. Mm-hmm. And it was very, very deliberate. Mm-hmm. So this is really a story of how women's clothing, women, in 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 a sense, have have not been able to be outspoken. Yeah. historically. So we choose to sometimes speak with what we wear. Hmm. And this is a way that Melania, while she says nothing, ta- th- how she thinks about her role as first lady. Yeah. That's all. Well, and in other Trump news, <laughs> we've got uh, the family leave policy. Ivanka's <sighs> bread and butter. Yeah, so uh, this week the budget for, well, the Trump's White House, sorry. This week uh, the Trump's budget was introduced into Congress, um, or at least publicized. They have yet to vote on it, and it's very likely that they won't pass it as is. Um, But part of what was included um, was the family leave policy that Ivanka had been advocating for since last year at the DNC. Or sorry, the RNC. Whew, that was, I'm sorry. That was offensive. (laughs) (laughs) At the RNC, where she spoke about wanting to create family leave policies, um, a very basic kind of um, leave for all women across the country so they can, don't have to go back to work like two weeks after giving birth. Yeah, because she's going to change women's lives, remember, with her book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She she's the the liberal savior of the Trump administration. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, basically, so the policy in the budget uh, comes out to less than two billion dollars annually over ten years. Oh, and which is a relatively small consolation prize um, in a larger budget that would then also slash one point seven trillion in entitlements um, that disproportionately benefit women. Hmm. Um, the program would also rely on st- uh, a state-by-state patchwork to guarantee six weeks of paid leave to new parents, um, which is, to be fair, an improvement over the existing federal paid leave policies in the U.S., um, which currently allow employees at certain companies up to 12 weeks of unpaid time away. So getting six weeks of paid leave is better than 12 weeks of unpaid leave. Um, But it also, at the same time, doesn't offset the larger losses in the budget to women, particularly women um, who are poor or single. Yeah, just looking at what they want to cut from basically like food stamps and welfare, Mm -hmm. um, which women are probably disproportionately in need of. Mm -hmm. They're like, they're cutting, says they're going to cut $21.6 billion from welfare and 191 billion from the supplemental nutrition assistance program food stamps. So really the message is like women should work and if you're not a working woman who's going to have babies, we don't really care about you. Yeah. They hate poor people. Yeah. Sure, but also to qualify for the 6 weeks of paid leave, you also have to already have a job. Yeah. So basically, if you are poor and unworking, you can't get this paid leave if you aren't 
working while already pregnant. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, I mean, this whole Ivanka Trump fa- paid family leave policy, like, great, it's a, it's a step, but it's not going to help anyone. Well, yeah, I mean, it's not enough. So, do, like, do we give her a cookie and say congratulations, you did something, or do we just say, go fuck yourself, go back to the drawing board? Yeah. Well, I would like to posit a theory. And my theory is this, that when it comes right down to it, people, women at the top, aren't that really, aren't really that different. Like, between the Republicans and the Democrats. Hmm. And when I say at the top, I mean at the top of business, at the top of politics, at the top of this and that. I mean, I mean, like, when I think of top women, I think of Hillary Clinton Mm -hmm. in terms of politics. Mm I mean, are they real? I I know I know some I know that this is not going to be a popular statement, but when has it stopped Great. Me before? Um, Love some controversy. Yeah, at her. I yeah. just I just I I think when it comes right down to it, the way they would govern wouldn't be like if it were just Ivanka. I'm not talking about Trump. Mm-hmm. I'm not talking about Daddy. Mm-hmm. I'm talking about just Ivanka. If it were just Ivanka, at, you know, as, let's say, president policy, would she be that different from Hillary Clinton? Because Hillary was a hawk. Yeah. Is a hawk. And Hillary's not that progressive. Mm. Let's be honest. She really isn't. Well, I think it, if, like, She's when still you're... trading off shit she did for children 40 years ago. Yeah. Well, I think when you're talking about women at the top of politics, at least, like, you have to you get to the top of politics by getting the most amount of buy-in from the most amount yeah. of people. And right. since the most amount of people aren't going to buy into truly progressive policies, you can't get to the top. Well, and that's another thing with the whole, even this proposal in the budget is that, sure, it's there, but Congress can be like, no, we're just going to scrap this. That's why mm-hmm. I always say Congress is your problem. Yeah. Congress and the Senate. Yeah. Like, don't, I'm not saying don't worry about about what Trump does. I mean, I just saw that some, like, I don't, this week, I'm just so exhausted. Like, like Jared, Jared oh, just God. got, Jer- Jared was trending for two days. Nobody trends for two days. Nobody. <laughs> Not unless it's a crisis. It's a, like, and I, I, I was just looking at Twitter and, 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 <clears throat> and, some Russian just just made a deal to testify. Like, it's just crazy. Mm-hmm. And so, where am I going with this? Where was I? Oh, the difference. I just, I don't know that our politics are that different. Yeah. And that is depressing. That's my point. Okay, I'll just leave it there. Well... This is a good segue to a piece further down that we were going to talk about, which is Jagmeet Singh. Ooh, and, yay. And I think there's a good argument to talk about fashion here, too. Yay. Right? Because he's like... Mr. Fashionable. Yeah, they're like, is he going to out Justin Trudeau? Justin Trudeau. I hope somebody does. Okay, so for some context, mm-hmm. uh, Jagmeet Singh is a provincial Ontario MP from the New Democratic Party mm-hmm. at the provincial level, who has declared his candidacy for the federal New Democratic Party yeah. to be leader. And for those who don't know, we have 
three main parties in Canada. Maine. Please don't tell me about the Greens, okay? <sighs> um, and I said national too. <laughs> yeah. So uh, the New Democrats are would be your left of center party. Yeah. Yeah, with the liberals in the center and then the conservatives on the right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so he's basically, he's known for his style and his flash. Yeah. And he's Sikh. Yes. Yeah, he wears a turban. So there's a little bit of, like, exoticization or exotic, I don't know. Exoticization? Yeah, Yeah. of, of him, like, everyone's, like, Ooh, he's so stylish with his, like, you know, his brightly colored turban. It's, I don't know. I, I don't think it's that out of, like... No, it's not. Like, if, if he was, like, around lots of people wearing turbans, I don't think they would be, like... No, exactly. He's not, like, really out there. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I know. Yeah. But because he's surrounded by white men, we're like, whoa. Yeah. Definitely, if he grew up in Edmonton, he's not out there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so Sikhs in Canadian politics aren't particularly unusual. Um, Four Sikhs were appointed to the Justin Trudeau cabinet when they took office in 2015. Um, But those uh, MPs were elected in ridings where visible minorities made up 45% of the population. Um, And a survey conducted um, into research in political sciences at at Queen's University in Toronto um, found that in 54% of ridings, there was not a single visible minority among the candidates for the three major parties, which is It's a, an abomination, to be honest, for such a multicultural Canada. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so um, the, the study wrote that the strategic placement of visible minority candidates in only the most diverse ridings lulls us into thinking that our politics is inclusive, which is a really, really great point. Yeah, it does. It, it, um, I, okay, so the C, so this article is from the CBC, and can I just, I, the CBC and interpreting statistics drives me crazy because they can't actually do it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and then they bring these useful, useless polls into their writing. Like, they brought this poll published in 2004. Oh, 13 years ago. Very relevant. Very relevant. Found that 30% of, of respondents were willing to say they would have been less likely to vote for a party that was led by a Muslim. And 8% were less likely to support a leader who was black. I wonder what those numbers are today. But also, this is a story about a Sikh man who is, I know. Neither, who is neither a Muslim nor black. Exactly. Yeah. So there's the other problem with that article. Aaron, what's his name? Wary. Wary. Yeah. Yeah. You might want to figure out who you're talking about. Yeah. Well, it'll be interesting. I mean... It, like, it was only, I think, in, like, the 1990s that RCMP, op- Sikh RCMP officers were allowed to wear their turbans to work. And where did that come from? Uh, Edmonton. Okay. Edmonton. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Bailey, the look at the, like, a deer in headlights know, right there. you guys are like, um... <laughs> I don't have an answer. Uh, so... 
So that's interesting. But then, of course, now, like, in Quebec, they're making arguments so that nobody can wear a symbol of their religious, like, mm-hmm. expression or whatever on their person. So I don't know. I mean, I think that he wears a uh, turban is significant in that he's trying to run for federal leadership. But I don't know. I think the bigger question is, is he going to save the NDP? I think that's the real question. Yeah. Because the NDP doesn't seem to... With, with that leap manifesto, why? Yeah. Why? Well, and I think him, like, there's other people running, like, um, Nikki Ashton and other people. We talked about before, yeah. But he seems to have eclipsed them out of the race. What is it, Nikki Ashton? By announcing. Yeah. But seriously, they should have done a better job. Look, I, listen, if you are running for office and you don't have a media game plan, then sorry, Bye. Okay, you see Michael Chong of the Conservative Party. By the way, the Conservative Party of Canada is choosing its leader today, tonight. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, So, for example, Michael Chong. He was on Canada Land. Well, you can't really control what the media says about you and blah, blah, blah. Absolutely, you can. Yeah, you can. Yeah, there's people whose jobs. It's a job. (laughs) Like, I'm just like... I, I kind of think if you don't understand media at this point or have somebody around, bye. So yeah, I, I, yeah. Like, I don't really care what the other ones are saying because I haven't heard of them. And yeah. the reason, and to think, I've won, we, the three of us are people who are actively involved in knowing about these things. Mm-hmm. So who cares what Nikki Ashton has to say? I don't know what she has to say. She should have put it out there. Oh, my, we're going to get that. <laughs> Great. I'm just saying. Yeah. I mean, like, you have to have a coordinated strategy. So, going back to Jagmeet yeah. Singh. Okay. So, you know when I was running? Uh, uh, sorry. You know when I knew he was running? When? when I was sh- like, are you running? Yeah, <laughs> no. <laughs> my fa- my, my Twitter, neither my Twitter nor my Facebook feed would survive. Yeah. <laughs> so, I'll just be on the outside, just talking shit. Okay. I think that's the first time I swore in this podcast. <sighs> Yay. Anyway, um, so Jagmeet Singh, I knew he was running when he showed up in GQ. Oh, yeah. And I was Uh, like, good on you, bro. Good on you. And you know why? Because he entered like, he he entered like, not like, um, I'm going to use some air transport metaphors here. Not like a jet, Mm -hmm. but more like a glide. He glided in he did also wait he waited waited. quite a bit before he announced his exactly and you know what that is strategy Mm. wow so i mean i feel as though there's a very important very important issue in this country that we're not talking about and that's the future of work and industry really Mm -hmm. um you know there's there's a generational shift happening how are we going to adjust our tax structures, et cetera, to reflect a more, f- a more fluid economy? Mm-hmm. Yeah. We have yet to talk. I've yet to hear about any sort of leader talking about that. The automation of jobs and that type of thing? Maybe the automation of jobs, but what about the law? Like the social contract is dead. So, yeah. so yet we're still operating as though it is. It isn't, sorry. Mm-hmm. And that affects revenues. Mm-hmm. It, re- it affects your revenue base. Mm-hmm. And if your revenue base starts shrinking because you haven't figured out how to 
how to tax people properly because they're not working in the same way that they used to, then you have a missed opportunity. Also, let's talk about education and how we can actually stop preparing people to be really good workers and be really good thinkers. Mm -hmm. So, damn it, I I swear if I were running, y'all, if I were running, that would be my thing. (laughs) It really would. And because, and and women face more precarious work. Yeah. Yes. Period. Well, that's a good segue to the next article. There you go. (laughs) (laughs) Speaking of women who have to rely on their credit cards to get their business. Um, student loan debt, as I'm sure many of us will be able to relate, uh, disproportionately crushes women. Yeah. So, uh, the American Association of University Women found that women have to take out more student loans than men in order to pursue a degree. Um, they specifically found that 44% of women enrolled in undergrad programs take out loans compared to 39% of men. And women also graduate with more debt. Um, on average, a woman with a bachelor's degree will have $1,500 more in debt, be $1,500 more in debt than a man, which I mean, I guess isn't substantial, but when you don't have a job. Well, and the reason that is, is because our razors are $14 more and like <laughs> my fucking shaving cream costs more than a man's and I have to buy tampons every month. Which you have to pay tax on. Yeah, Exactly. So no wonder we have more debt. But then it, I'm sorry to say, gets worse. Um, When you account for race, black students overall graduate with more debt than white students. And, of course, black women face the highest burden. Mm -hmm. A black woman will graduate with $10,117 more student loan debt than a white man and $8,841 more debt than a white woman. Um, black women also carry more debt than black men. Uh, with the typical black woman graduating with a bachelor's degree, uh, particularly for this study, I guess, used the, the year 2011-2012, um, they did it with about $29,000 in student loans, while black men averaged $25,000 in student loans. Which, coming, I mean, coming from Canada... Like, Americans yeah. generally have astronomical student debt. Yeah. So these numbers are really painful for me to see. Because when I first started at university, like, my semester was going to be, like, it was, like, $1,300. Oh, wow. Maybe fifteen. So, like, it wasn't. Yeah. Plus, like, your thousands of dollars in books. <laughs> oh, God, yeah. Um, anyways, um, so this is attributed to several factors, apparently. Um, the majority of students work well enrolled in school, but uh, the gender pay gap could mean that women students, particularly women of color, are therefore earning less and have to take out more loans and are less likely to make payments towards their loans while they're in school because they have to pay rent. And then have higher interest rates because they can pay back their debt slower. Yep. Uh, and also students of color typically have less financial support. Um, a typical white family has 16 times uh, the accrued wealth of the typical black family in the United States, which means that they can provide their children with financial support or let them live at home for maybe. Um, and then finally, uh, the report also notes that non-traditional students, like students who have children, are largely women or people of color, 
Um, and these students face the additional financial burden of childcare. Uh, for them, student loan debt at graduation is on average $26,600 versus $19,100 for students without children. Hmm. And then, well, one more uplifting point. Uh, <laughs> women remain in debt longer than men, too, uh, with black women and Latina women lagging the furthest behind. Uh, black women and Hispanic women paid off only about 12% and 18% of their debt uh, within a three-year period, respectively, compared to 33% and 60% of white and Asian women, respectively. The gender pay gap is obviously a big factor here, mm-hmm. preventing women and women, particularly women of color, from accessing the money they need to pay off this debt. Yeah. Well, that's depressing. <laughs> Um, It's just another way to institutionalize poverty. Yep. And, like, if you need education to have access to high-paying jobs, so then you've got to go to university and you've got to get students. Or you have to go to a trade school or college or some sort of vocational school. Exactly. But But then you're crushed by your student debt. I really do think this is the last generation that's, going to um, attend college, university, in these high levels. Yeah. Yeah. Because I think we've gone to, we've come to the point where um, a bachelor's degree is basically useless. Yeah. It's meaningless. Online education has taken off like nobody's business. Yeah. yeah. But not like that University of Phoenix bullshit. No, no, no. No, not even like, like a, that. an online degree. So, like, so for example, um, I can take a class, a marketing class, um, right, or get Stanford a marketing certificate or... at, from Stanford yeah. Online. Yeah. I think MIT courseware yeah. was yeah. the first, I think, or the yeah. first major one. It's like, not like a scam. Like Yeah, it's not like a scam. Yeah. And I think, I, think they're, I think the universities, while doing that, are just diluting their brand. And listen, this is not me saying they, it shouldn't be done. I think the brand needs to be diluted. Mm. I'm not, like, this is not a value judgment on, yeah, it kind of is. I just made one. But, but at the end of the day, online, anything online has become the democratization of whatever, right? Yeah. It has reduced the cost of education. And so I really do think that in the future, there's going to be less importance, let's say, placed on attending Harvard in, where's Harvard? Cambridge. And saying, oh, okay, so you have, you've done some learning at Harvard. It's fine. Like, yeah. I could totally see that. Mm-hmm. And so, and the fact of the matter is, is that this crushing debt will just speed up that process because let people are going to start to wonder about the value. And once people start wondering about the value of your institution, you're fucked. Yeah. yeah. It's only, it's only going to go downhill. Look at when people started wondering about the Canadian, about Canadian media. And then yeah. now look at them. Right. Any other thoughts on that? Except no. for like, boo. I mean, I mean... I don't know what the solution is except to think that to make these spaces equitable and if we have problems with women in STEM and, you know, making sure that women are able to pay off their debt. Which are more expensive, by the way. Yeah, exactly. Then we, there should be like a different rate for women. 
Sure, and this is why we need affordable child care. Yeah, exactly. This is why we need abortions if we want one. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, God. I just don't want to... It's all related. It is all related. Like, I wish people would stop this case-by-case basis business, okay? If you're looking at things on a case-by-case basis, you cannot see the pattern or the links. Yeah. Period. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, want to go to France now? Sure. So anybody who could unsee Trudeau and his his well, so the newly inaugurated president Emmanuel Macron uh, unveiled his cabinet on Wednesday, and he got himself a gender parity cabinet. Twenty-two and, women. And that's a lot of. Or sorry, that's... eleven women. Okay, twenty-two positions. Okay. <laughs> I was like, that's a damn big cabinet. <laughs> Yeah, sorry, women filling half of the 22 positions, as promised. So he also made this a promise in his campaign. This is a thing now. It's a thing. It's a gender, it's a, it's a campaign thing. <laughs> Why are you being silent? <laughs> are we over it? We're just like fucking over gender parity already? We're like, yeah, yeah, it's been done. But because we see how it is in the, in the, in the, okay, I'm interested it's not only, again, it's not only the number, it's the distribution. Well, and that's, so yeah, so that actually, so apparently um, Hollande also achieved gender parity in his 2012 cabinet, but oh. the criticism there was that the women got most of the, like, quote-unquote, soft uh, positions. Why do you think I'm not, I'm not really interested in, yes. in, in Mr. Trudeau's little gender parity there? Well, yes. Because I'm like, when mm. we get a female finance minister or a female... We have a female trade minister, but a female, like, foreign, um, um, num, 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 GAC. We do. We do. Sorry, not GAC. Um, well, like a female governor of the Bank of Canada, for example. Right. Or something like that. Um, then I'll be more interested. Well, in France, uh, let's see. So the, some of the positions taken by women were defense minister. Oh, Ooh, that's the other one. Yes. Wow. Ooh, that's now good. we're getting somewhere. Carry on. Uh, <laughs> that was just an inter- a spiked interest in this story, mm-hmm. everybody. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I, I think it's Did you, still, wait, say that again? Defense? Yeah. What else? Um, Agnes Buzan is the health minister. So that's, mm. that, I mean, I would call that a, a quote, quote unquote soft one. Mm-hmm. Um, um, it depends. Like, that regards, like, relates to women's health. So it could be, like, yeah. abortion and stuff. And yeah, I mean, I'm not mad yeah. at a woman health minister. But I, I think that that mm, fills that women as nurturers stereotype. Florence Nightingale. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it looks like Anik uh, Girardin, who was the Minister for Public Services previously, is now the Overseas Territory Minister. Overseas. Oh, Overseas <laughs> the Colonialist Minister. <laughs> Minister of yeah, the colonies. <laughs> uh, so, so yeah. I mean, still some of these. A lot of them are still going to men. Like, there's a male justice minister, a male. Uh, we at least affairs. have a female justice minister. That's true. We don't have a female defense minister though, and that would be really interesting. Yeah. Well, to be to we be, do have a Sikh. He, we do Defense have a Sikh minister, man though. who apparently is, um, wow, 
poor guy. Anyway. Why poor guy? Because I was just thinking about that cartoon in the sun. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Sorry. Fuck the we sun. Keep, we keep referencing, or I keep referencing, news stories that we don't actually talk about. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Um... So, uh, apparently, that he has been criticized about this gender parity cabinet. Uh, What's the criticism? The, the far-right National Front said he had brought back personalities who have already significantly demonstrated their complete incompetence. So, there you go. <laughs> Why is that the first thing? Yeah. You know, as soon as you hear diversity, the competence level yeah. decreases. Yeah. But which is okay from now on anybody who says who starts um an argument on diversity with merit is telling me two things or basically one thing which mm-hmm. is people who aren't white and male are not as competent at their jobs yeah. yeah that's exactly the assumption that you need to acquire to make that argument yeah 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 no it's true and when they're like, where are they going to find the competent people that are diverse? Where are they? They're literally like, right there. in front they're of right you. There. And welcome back to Bad and Bitchy. We're at our rent and receipt segment. So Bailey, what do you have for us today? Uh, well, mine is a carryover from last week. Uh, yeah, this is like... This just made me think of, like, if every time you called out your misogynist uncle at the Thanksgiving dinner table, he, like, actually listened to you, (laughs) you know? So Uncle Jim, mayor of Ottawa, uh, has now put uh, a move to the Attorney General of Ontario, Yasser Nakvi, um, to protect women seeking access to abortion outside of clinics and prevent... um, I don't know, I guess these awful protests or whatever. Like the 87-year-old with his flag? Yeah, with his stupid sandwich board. He's <laughs> the worst. Um, he needs to get right with the Lord. Yeah, yeah, that's what I want. I'm like, dude. Um, so, yeah, like, great. Similar laws already exist in BC and in Newfoundland and Labrador. And I was actually kind of surprised it didn't already exist in Ontario. Like... It's a big province. Yeah. Like, I, you would think that this would have, I don't know, I just assumed that with the right to accessing abortion, we would have also been safe in getting there, but... No, why would you need well, that? <laughs> so, that? Why would you need to be silly. safe? Um, so, you know, great, great, uh, great for Mayor Watson. But the other thing that I was kind of like, eh, is that, like, so now he's just, like, passed it on over to the province rather than just... Like, can we just fix Ottawa? Can we just do something about Ottawa? He, uh, yeah, it's like he's kind of just like, um, I have no power or I don't want to take a particularly strong point yeah. on this issue, so I'm going to pass the buck to the province. Yeah, exactly. And, like, when the police chief, Charles Bordelow, was asked about it, he was like, well, if there were a bubble zone, oh you know, we could do God. this, we could do that. It just feels like they're all just, like, playing hot potato. They are. And the they women's are. reproductive access is the hot potato. They are so you know? are. It's just like, come on. Just somebody do something. <laughs> like, for fuck's sake. We need black women. We just need a black woman to be like, fuck Ooh. it, I'll do it. <laughs> you know? <Ooh>. Anyway. I... Yeah. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I think we just found the title. 
Anyway, so that's um, that's my rent and receipts. Like, yay, he does. Yay, Mayor Watson, you don't get a feminist cookie. Sorry. No, I, I do. But I wonder, though. Yeah. Does he get Is a he... cookie? No, no, no. No. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to okay. take all of his cookies <laughs> and all of his fucking photo ops. I but do keep wonder, that milkshake to yourself. Like, how do you put this forward? Is he still going to, like, every year on the the March for Life still be like, oh, here's question. the, like... It's the Celebration of Life Day proclamation. Yeah, he seems to be trying to just make that go away. That wasn't addressed in in the article. This was just about the guy and, like, the sometimes two dudes in front of the clinic in Ottawa harassing women going in. Do they have jobs? No, they definitely don't have jobs. Because <laughs> I'm just like, where do there, pe- I there wonder about day. people sometimes. I'm like, where do you find the time? Yeah. I have none. Because I guess know, what? I have none. Guess what? I'm sure there's a single woman out there with children working her ass off instead of listening to your shit. Yeah, exactly. Oh, my God. Anyway, so, so that's what's happening in Ottawa's abortion access debate. That's where we're at now. So he... Okay, so he let's recap. So the March for Life was like on May 11th or May 1st. I don't know, something like that. Early May? Not May Day. (laughs) Whatever. I mean, although you could, it's women's rights calling for help. Right. Yes. Anyway, early May. Early May, March for Life. And then, so we have this old white guy. Uh, with his little flag there protesting this. Well, and that that issue came up, I think, before the March for Life. Okay. Him so... harassing women trying to access the clinic. Yes. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So that happened before March for Life. Because the clinic was in like early April, late March. Yeah. That started yeah. Being okay. a thing. Yeah. The, the clinic was like calling the cops and they were like, we can't do anything. So then they were calling bylaw and then the bylaw was oh. like, oh, call the cops. And the cops were like, call bylaw. So nobody did fuck all about it. Oh, it's hot potato. Yeah. Between government agencies. Yeah. Yeah. This is why people hate government. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, I this is not the first time that that those two have shown no leadership. Those two meaning the police and the mayor. Yeah, Yeah. because the police chief can't even keep his own department in line. So I don't know why he's making. Yeah. You know, pronouncements about outside issues he's got his own internal squabbles yeah. to deal with yeah he's like can you please just call bylaw because i can't fucking deal with this right yeah now. <laughs> exactly because he can't get his cops to stop being racist bylaw's like um we can't do anything because the bylaw says they're fine yeah we only give tickets <laughs> exactly so so there there, I, there seems to be a crisis in leadership in the city to be honest mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. definitely Anyway, hopefully Attorney General Nackby will do something about it. But, of course, in the now black hole that is um, provincial legislation, who knows? We may never hear about this again. And don't <laughs> fall for the Kathleen Wynne okie Yeah. Which is, the Kathleen Wynne okie is when she tells you, carding, that she's going to get rid of something, winks, smiles at you, and then turns around and does it. Yeah. I wonder if this is something she'd actually do, though, because it doesn't... It, like, affects white people also. Yeah. Yep. Also, like, Catherine McKenna, the uh, member of parliament for the downtown Ottawa area, mm-hmm. did sign on to the support for this. Mm-hmm. So it's a little bit... I guess we'll see. We will see. 
Anyway, we got the receipts. Yeah. Mayor Watson, we're watching. We are watching. Aaron. Yeah, so I, I'm going to bring kind of an ongoing story um, that has been taking place in the media since earlier this year in Canada. Um, the Calgary Police Service... Sorry, so this story comes from the investigation at the Globe and Mail done by Robin Doolittle. Um, that was a series called Unfounded. Um, and she talks about sexual assaults and the police within Canada and the how the police departments at all different kinds of local, provincial, I think even federal RCMP police um, have mm-hmm. been determining an alarming number of sexual assault cases as unfounded, which is a term that means that the investigating officer does not believe a crime occurred or was attempted. Mm-hmm. Um, so as the, because of that, um, that story or that series, uh, the Calgary Police Service has become the first department in the country to commit an ongoing external review of sexu- sexual assault cases by frontline advocates. Did you say Calgary? Yeah. Alberta again. Okay. It, yeah. And that's amazing. They, they, sort of, <laughs> they loosely refer to it as the Philadelphia model. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Do you want to tell us about the Philadelphia model? Please do. Sure. Uh, so the Philadelphia model recognizes the expertise of external and frontline sexual assault workers um, because in Philadelphia they had this unfounded issue too where like they were just finding all sorts of sexual assaults as not having enough evidence. Not yeah, even and sorry. not having enough evidence to proceed, but that they didn't believe it was happening. Yeah, so actually it was 18% um, were deemed unfounded, and then that rate plummeted to 4% because mm-hmm. of this. Yeah, exactly. So basically, it's working in partnership with the people that are doing the work in the community, which probably see, well, we know statistically that they see way more women coming to them for sexual violence support than they are than there are going to the police because of all these various barriers. Um, so yeah, so the Philadelphia model, we've been advocating it for it in Ottawa for the last three years and the Ottawa police have said no. Did they say why? They told us a whole bunch of reasons why no. Uh, the first one was that they felt it was a privacy issue. So we, we tried to deal with that. Mm. Um, they felt that then they said, okay, well they will do it, but they are, they're only going to have academics and lawyers review the cases, not frontline support workers. Um, because they don't recognize the expertise of frontline workers. Mm -hmm. Um, so that happened and then we pushed back and said, no, we need frontline support workers there. And ultimately they say they're worried that frontline support workers will be biased. Oh, I, I guess against the police. Right. or that there will be a conflict of interest if you run into a client that you've served but Mm -hmm. then you would just abstain from doing that case like it's pretty anyway um so the the series found that um within canada the sexual assault uh, the unfounded sexual assault rate between 2010 and 2014 was 19 percent um and they only have the data until 2014 because Statistics Canada stopped collect or collecting or publishing it. Mm-hmm. Um, but then I think recently Stats Canada decided they were going to start collecting it again. They got new funding yeah. and a new government. Yeah, 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 so, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, well, and in Ottawa now, I think, so after this unfounded thing came out, I, like I tweeted with the Ottawa police a fair bit about it. 
um, and Chief Borlo said that they actually don't use the term unfounded anymore. They just say founded, not supported. Or oh my like God, that. who is this guy? Oh my God, <laughs> I can't even. His distinction for that is that that unfounded makes it sound like the police don't believe the person reporting That's the sexual the definition. Because yeah. it's accurate. Yes. Whereas un sorry, whereas the Ottawa Police Service definition of founded, not supported means the police officer believes her, but they can't find enough evidence. Is this okay. is this self reported? Uh, so do you, for example, does the police they, person yeah, they check a box? Yeah, they categorize their own oh. statistics. Mm. So anyway, I think where okay. it's now, I, I don't know where exactly the police are with this external review anymore, but uh, I think they've now, they're now open to the idea of adopting the Philadelphia model. Is it now. possible that the Calgary police are doing this because of the rate of sexual assault at Stampede especially? The mass gatherings uh, issue. Yeah, which comes to our, we're in festival season now, mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. matters. Mm -hmm. And actually the stampede is, stamp, not the stampede, stampede, it's like saying the Twitter. Okay, <laughs> stampede is coming up actually in yeah. a couple of months or yeah. six weeks or um, something. So uh, the Globe and Mail series, uh, they have a website where you can put in uh, the city or town or ca even down to the county level that you live in Wow! to find out what uh, the unfounded rate for that period of 2000 to 2014 was. Sorry, Did 2010 you to 2014. Did you type in Ottawa? 28%. That's ridiculous. That is astronomical. 28%. So now the Ottawa Unfounded. Police, yeah, yeah. The Ottawa police, when I asked them about that statistic... Um, Jamie Dunlop, who is the um, sergeant in charge of the sexual assault unit, wrote back and said that that's an incorrect statistic because it's a, they categorize theirs as founded, not supported, but the Globe and Mail doesn't recognize that. So no, they, and nor should it. Yeah. And it, it actually, oh. it shouldn't be for comparative purposes. Right? Also, if you're getting your data from Statistics Canada... Canada. Well, and ultimately... They don't recognize statistics from Statistics Canada. <laughs> it doesn't, and it doesn't matter what you call it. At the end of the day... It's the, the same police, thing. Yeah, the Ottawa police are telling 28% of women who come to the police, which is only 10% of women experiencing sexual assault, and telling them that there is not enough evidence to proceed with their case because, oh, we don't know. But on the provincial level, um, with the national rate at 19%, Ontario is still at 25% unfounded. That's crazy. Yeah. Also, I'd like to say a shout out BC for being the the lowest. Right on. Shout BC. out BC. Well, I I, I, I mean, want to say like good. The longer I live in Ontario, is the is the realization that Ontario is really not that progressive. It's not. Yeah. Like its laws, what it's omitted. Um, reading about you know like Toronto is racist as hell and sexist. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I'm just like wow. Let's yeah. not look down our nose at other people. Yeah. Is all I'm saying. Well, and I think the Calgary Police Service should be really applauded for making this step. Like, this is a big step, and I shout can understand. Out, shout out yeah, Calgary. Like, it's, it's scary as a police service because they are opening their their files to community advocates who are going to review them and go through them. But, like, as a police service, you have to remember it's not about saying you did bad. It's about, like, we can do better. So let's mm -hmm. figure out together reframing. how we do this better. To provide 
services, better services and better results for the community that we're serving. Exactly. I love how institutions think they can hide shit now, Mm -hmm. nowadays. It's like, you can't hide anything. No, you can't. Okay? Like, so I guess what I'm trying to say is it's better, and this is from a PR perspective especially, Mm -hmm. it's better to, to do this, like to take the lead as the Calgary Police Services have, yeah. than to be forced into it and deny it like Ottawa. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're going to jump back to the U.S. now, but yeah. I think this definitely applies in Canada, which is the tech industry's omission of black female entrepreneurs. So the tech industry, i.e. yet another industry run by white bros, yeah. which means it needs help. Um, the tech industry apparently has been... I wouldn't. I don't want to say failing black women because that makes it sound like they owe us something, and they don't. But at the same time, when you, whenever I hear about, oh, we can't find people, or we can't mm-hmm. do this, or we can't, I'm pretty sure they're out there. They just don't look like what you think they should look like. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So this is a piece. Um, in fastcompany.com. Um, I love Fast Company. Mm-hmm, I read really them good. a lot. They're really good. And so when I'm talking about the future of work and stuff like that, these are things that Fast Company really thinks about and writes about and talks about in a really smart way. So anyway, investors aren't taking risks on startups run by the nat- nation's most credentialed, accomplished, and ambitious group. So Which is? Black women. Black women are the most educated group in the nation, and they are highest. We are the highest percentage of any group enrolled in college, as per the 2011 Census Bureau. The U.S. Department of Labor reports that 60% of black women are active in the labor market but are grossly underpaid. By the way, Black Women's Equal Pay Day is on August 1st this year. Black women are also the fastest group of entrepreneurs in in America. According to data from the Institute for Women's Policy Research, there was a 265% increase in black women-owned businesses between 1997 and 2014, outpacing growth among all women-owned firms, which grew in revenues by 72% during the same period. Black women are responsible for over 1.5 million businesses and generating over $44 billion a year in revenue while, le- while being responsible for the livelihood of roughly 400,000 workers. Um, apparently, so just as an aside, um, the Flint water crisis, mm-hmm. uh, so, the con- so some of the containers are going to be replaced by a black female-owned business firm. Mm. So that is one of the ways where black women contribute not only to the bigger um, society, but to their own communities. Yeah. Okay. So um, now, investors, unfortunately, aren't taking risks on startups run by these women. In an industry filled with tales of boys behaving badly, there is a group of women who are just looking for a break. 
The tech industry, one that thrives on creative solutions and innovation, is ignoring the opportunity for fresh ideas and new products and improvements on existing ones. And in this article, they give a tale of two apps and how one, one could argue the better app had to struggle for funding and still struggles for funding because it's a black woman who founded it. Mm-hmm. Also, you know Birchbox, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So Gary Vaynerchuk, who I listen to a lot, <laughs> he is, so if you don't know, Gary Vaynerchuk is this um, super, super mega entrepreneur who goes around and just talks about entrepreneurship and tech and social media and so on and so forth. So he really is like a digital entrepreneur. Mm-hmm. And he said, that w- So he invested in Birchbox, and he said these women had the best game plan out there. He says the reason they, they didn't get funding was because of sexism, no doubt. Wow. And that's white women. Okay, so, <laughs> so which means that all I'm trying to say is that it's going to be even harder for women of color. So the Small Business Jobs Act of 2010 increased limits for tax write-offs for startups, such as the ability to deduct cell phone bills, depreciation, and health care costs. This was great news for black women who tend to be younger when they found their companies, have more debt, and less access to capital. Black women have greater difficulty receiving funding from investors and creditors and difficulty securing lending due to racial bias. Hmm. According to Digital Undivided's Project Diane, more than 50% of black female founders received less than 100000 in funding, which implies that these women are tapping resources outside of traditional venture networks, such as loans from family and friends, retirement accounts, credit cards, and personal savings. On the off chance a black woman founder is funded, the money comes from within her community. Hmm. So I'd like to break, and all those white people who are like, why do we need black entertainment television? Why do we need black awards? Why do we... That's just racist. No, bitch. You know what's racist? Mm. This is racist. (laughs) The underlying reason for having to do this is racism. Mm -hmm. So, So, in other words, the only place where black women can be funded on a regular basis is from other black people. Mm-hmm. Okay. This is why you have bl- like black scholarships. This is why you have black specific yeah. programs. This is why you have like black girls code instead of That's why you so, have... which is separate than from ladies learning code. Exactly. Yeah. Oh, I I hear I understand Google moved them to into their New York offices, Black Girls Code about a year ago, oh, like yeah. 2 years ago. Yep. Yeah. I'd actually, actually, I'd like to see what's happening with that, to be honest. If anybody knows about anything that's going on with Black Girl Code and Google, please tweet us or email us, and we'll give you the info at the end of the podcast. So anyway, um, apparently Magic Johnson Enterprises Fund is a VC, a venture capital, or Mm. they have at least have a venture capital arm that funds a lot of of Black businesses. Um, Considering that the nation will be majority-minority by 2044, 
Blacks are the largest group and the largest and most engaged group of early tech adopters. Black spending power is at $1.25 trillion. Hispanics buying power is $1.3 trillion. It would be wise to invest in these businesses for the good prob probability of return on investment. This, and I want to star and highlight and like this next part, this demographic determines the cool factor of a product once released and provides access to influencers and a group that can determine the next it technology. That's my spiel. <laughs> well, that's depressing. Yeah. So. The whole world's depressing. <laughs> By the way, I honestly, I read an article, it might have been in Fast Company too, where the reason that black women are your largest, fastest growing base of entrepreneurs is because of the racism in corporate. Mm -hmm. Oh, that doesn't surprise me at all. Yeah. yeah. I know that's why I left. Yeah. 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 <laughs> So let's move on to Mar Maggie. I want to move on to Maggie. Okay, well, we're so here we are. Misogynist of the week. This is where we pick the biggest misogynist this week thus far. Um, we have two this week. First one, Maggie. You want to call her Maggie, eh? I want to call her Maggie because, uh, like... Well, Margaret Wente, Maggie Wente. By the way, who's um, also a... Oh gosh, what's the word I'm looking for now? Beyond misogynist? Yeah. Plagiarist? Thank you. That's yeah. the one. She's a plagiarist. Um, so well, she... she's a columnist in the Globe and Mail. Yeah. And this a plagiarist week... columnist who gets to keep her job. This week she muses. <laughs> it is amusing. Think of it like Carrie Bradshaw typing on her iMac. Her Can you give us an impression? I couldn't help but wonder has the gender revolution stalled? That was a pretty good. That was good. Job. No, that was really good. Thanks, guys. Oh, uh, so, that, so that was excellent. Why, why does she think the gender revolution has stalled? So basically, um, the the thesis of her column is that feminists don't seem to take into account that not all women want the same things they do. Okay. Hashtag, <laughs> hashtag not all women want rights. Um, they don't, not all women want to be the CEO. Not all women want to be at the executive table. Not all women want to work. Yeah, I don't want to work. But, <laughs> but on the other hand, I, I found this the most confusing. This is the most poorly written article I've written out of this whole, read out of this whole bunch. She's uh, just, just. To the be meandering she, thoughts. Well, but she's she's basing this amusing on her very lived experience in a funky Toronto neighborhood. So there you go. <laughs> That's sociological research says, at its best. She cites research that uh, we spoke to a few episodes ago that U.S. millennials, particularly younger ones, are showing less enthusiasm for gender equality, and that a surprising number of adult young men want stay-at-home wives. 
Um, well, when did we decide to ask the men if they knew what women wanted? Like, I don't think that they... Also, they want stay-at-home wives because they feel threatened, so they want to revert exactly. back to the 1950s. Yeah, and they want a fucking roast beef dinner every night. Maybe. Yeah. I mean, and the I thing is... Maybe they're vegan. Tonight, man. Shit, yeah. I could use one. Also, like... Sure, not all women want the same thing. We, the three of us, don't even want no. the same thing. No. So, <laughs> I don't see why assuming that everyone, every woman or every feminist wants to be in the boardroom. It has nothing to do with that. No, it has nothing to do with that. And I think, yeah, what, what, well, and this is, but this is typical of her perception of feminism of that generation where this it was like everybody women wanted to work and this was the thing whereas this new wave of feminism is about women having choices and like if you want to work that's great if you want to marry who you love that's great if you don't want to marry them that's cool do you want to have kids maybe maybe not you want to feed them with your breast in public that's fine yeah and if like I'm all for that. particularly yeah. if you don't want kids you yeah. need to be able to have safe ways to make sure that you have access to birth control exactly. or can get abortions. Exactly. In this article, she also says someone groused, which is, I, th- I think, quite a funny, a funny thing to say about somebody. It's a very generational <laughs> thing. She said, uh, if, if only if women work like men can they achieve true gender, gender equality defined by equal outcomes for all. Some feminists are even objecting to the government's decision to extend parental leave to 18 months. Why? Because women's careers could suffer. I have never seen that argument. No, me neither. For mothers tempted by the promise oh, of some extra time feminists? off with their newborn. Also, extra time off with your newborn is like taking a vacation when they're like a baby. Not maternal leave. Like, parental leave is not extra time off. It's being a parent. Anyway. Um, also, like, you're not getting more money. It's the same amount of money you would have gotten over 12 months prorated over 18. Yes. Well, you're not be- get, becoming richer. Well, the, this, the grouser of this article is, is a feminist, a noted feminist. So for mothers tempted by the promise of some extra time off with their, at home with their newborn, it's something of a poisoned chalice, groused Ivana Hedig, Heidig, a professor, business professor at Wilfrid Laurier University. It may have been intended as a woman-friendly, but this is a bad deal for gender equality. So, there you go. Um, Dramatic. And, like, I think that women in general want to be able to make their own choices and not feel pressured and be able to fucking have the right to vote, work wherever they want, to have access to affordable childcare. Yeah. I don't think that... And working is not the same as equating to being a feminist. No. Like it's the, that's only just one small portion of what the gender rights movement does. I know a lot of women who have children and who would consider themselves to be feminists and because of things like childcare costs, et cetera, et cetera, they're like, well, maybe it's better off, but I am a stay-at-home mom. Yeah, or they just want to be a stay-at-home mom. Yeah. They just don't want to work, and that's fine. Just like it's okay if somebody's husband doesn't want to work, you know? Like, yeah. okay, then don't. Be a stay-at-home dad. That's cool. Best. What difference does it make? doesn't make a difference. <laughs> it's just, yeah. Um, she, she concludes her article by saying, this confirms my suspicion. Remember, this is her sus- suspicions from her funky Toronto neighborhood. Some of the most ardent young feminists I know these days are stay-at-home moms. They are, to say the least, intensive parents. Nobody made them do it. They chose to. And if you tell them they've betrayed the sisterhood, they'll bite your head off. 
Well, fucking yeah. Because they didn't. Exactly. Fuck. (laughs) Oh, my God. I think, yeah. And I think, I I understand that people don't all want the same things. No. I, and I do struggle with that because I I always think like, oh, if people have so much potential, why don't you want more? And that's my own issue. Mm -hmm. But I don't Mm -hmm. think that that's a problem. No. Well, and we never talk about whether men want to work or not. We're never like, oh, men are betraying the brotherhood because he wants to be a guitarist in a band. Actually, they would talk about that. <laughs> oh, they I would talk, talk about, about that. that. They would talk about that. We wouldn't, but well, men would. I would, would but <laughs> men would. Men would. But I don't think they would declare it as like a, a gender rights conversation. No, but like part of it, so... Last weekend on my Facebook, saw a, a girl that I went to high school with and grew up with, got married, and she posted a photo of her, you know, I don't know, crouching down or something in her wedding dress, and was like, "Today was the day I became a missus." Just like a million exclamation points, and I was like, "I mean, great for you, her finding love and happiness and all that thing," but like it, it made me deeply uncomfortable because one, because it was such a weird public display of like your life and everything. Yeah but also because that is not something that I value. I personally do not value being chained to someone in such an obvious way. Like, sure, like, I want to get married, but I don't want to be like, oh, I'm his property. I am valued by that title. You don't want to be a missus? No. A missus? You don't want to get your missus tattoo? (laughs) You didn't go to university for your MRS? (laughs) (laughs) I did, but I failed. Uh, what is it mrs dropout (laughs) yeah basically i I wish man i got the letters (laughs) um yeah no it's just this is just bullshit this is just another way to like tell young women they don't know what they fucking want okay so when reading this i um i thought it was deeply yeah, it's deeply misguided, but it's just it's just out of touch. But yeah. it seems so it it just seems so irrelevant and so old school. Totally. Well and it It yeah. just seems very old. She, this sounds like like a, twenty yeah. years ago you would have seen this article. I just don't think I don't think that Margaret Rente, no matter what the Globe and Mail feels, has the chops to talk about these issues in a really smart way. Her article is awful. Well, and it is awfully written. And like a lot of women work from home too, and she doesn't seem to consider that. Like she's like one wants to be like a yoga instructor or something like that, which is fine. Also, that is work. Like that is work. So you know, preparing. Like I'm sorry, that is work. Yeah. Um. Yeah. Anyway, it this is just silly. So because they're not going into the office, it's not work. That, that's yeah, what I'm exactly. saying. It just that, seems yeah. dated. This yeah, entire it is dated. article. It go, well, it goes back dated. to the conversation you were thing you were mentioning earlier, Erica. Is that like work is so different now, and women's work is generally more precarious. So yeah. it's working at home. It's being a yoga instructor. It's being a server. Yeah. And what clouds this entire article is the is just the disgusting classism of this article. Yeah. I'm sorry, but not all women can choose to not work. Well, and or in, live in a funky Toronto neighborhood. Or, oh, please. 
and a starter home in a funky then, town neighborhood. You know but she probably bought like herself one million dollars. You know what kills me is that she cites she cites stats can um, statistics mm-hmm. and then pontificate or like pontificates as for the reason why part time work. I think part time work had increased or something like that. I can't remember. And she just. She 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 extended it to say, oh, it's probably because women don't want to work. Yeah, I'm like, no. and I'm like, no, that's not how stats works. <laughs> you actually have to research that shit. But she sees these women in her neighborhood, Erica. She sees them with her eyeballs. I know. So I know, <laughs> and it's it reeks of classism, and it it does it it reeks of 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 income inequality, and it reeks of that of that inner Toronto Rosedale mentality. It is dis- which is a disgustingly out of touch dated mentality. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, it really is. So speaking of disgusting out of touch mentalities. Oh God. <laughs> our second misogynist of the week <sighs> is Bill Cosby. We will, we shall never take a week off again. <laughs> Uh, so I guess Bill Cosby is trying to block prosecutors from calling an expert witness um, about how sexual assault survivors are supposed to behave and what the experiences of survivors are after they've been assaulted. Because, of course, we want to see the perfect victim mm-hmm. who runs crying to the police immediately after being assaulted and never speaks to her abuser again. That's, that's right. not how things work. Especially when you're a powerful man in Hollywood. Yeah. yeah. So basically, um, Bill Cosby's trial is coming up sometime in June, and um, which one? I think it's a. I think it's just one trial. Is it just one trial for all? I think so. I'm not 100 percent sure. Some of them, some of the statutes of limitations. Yeah, I think they're probably still probably still calling them as witnesses. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. I okay. imagine because okay. like you want to develop a pattern. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, he had previously last week said that, um, the charges against him were racist, um, was using the race card as a defense. The Don Meredith. Meredith. (laughs) (laughs) We should just call it the Don Meredith. The Don Meredith. And so now he's trying to, you know, block this, uh, expert witness. Which is, uh, like... It's so funny. I'm, I'm happy to hear an expert witness like this exists because this is one of defense attorneys' favorite ways to discredit sexual assault survivors is by saying, like, this is what they did in the Gian Gomeshi trial. They were like, well, to Lucy Day Couture, like, mm-hmm. well, why did you write him that letter after? Like, Well, I was surprised that the prosecution didn't bring in anybody like that yeah. Yeah. At, the, at the Gian Gomeshi trial. Yeah. Like, that to me is just... Dude, I've watched Law and Order for so long yeah. that even I knew that. Yeah, exactly. And I didn't go to law school. Well, and you have to take into account, like, a lot of the women that Bill Cosby assaulted and that have come forward with allegations were, like, up-and-coming young starlets trying right. to make it in Hollywood. Right. This, so there's a power know, play yeah, embedded. Yeah, same as Django um, and then there was that article in Rolling Stone that everybody eventually, like, I think, I think she, her story did get discredited and they said that she lied about her sexual assault and they, and Rolling Stone had published the article. Right. Was that the campus rape story? Yeah. But the yeah. thing is like traumatic memory isn't linear either. Like mm. you can't remember 
I can't even remember non-traumatic things in a linear fashion. Like yesterday, I couldn't tell you what I did from the time I got up to the time I went to work because I don't, I don't know. I did some things. I did the same thing I usually do, but I can't remember the order that I did it in. If I was traumatized, Mm -hmm. I absolutely wouldn't be able to tell you the same order that I do things in, you know? And so then anytime there's an inconsistency in a story, then the defense attorney jumps all over it and is like, well, but you said this before, but normally you do this. Well, I put it to you that you do this, you know? And it's like, it's just such a stupid way to sow the seeds of doubt in the jury or the judge's mind. But it works. It works all the time. Yeah. So I'm happy to see that this sort of expert witness exists and I can see why they want to block it. I don't understand, again, why prosecutors and like the Gomeshi trial didn't bring in an expert. Mm -hmm. I don't understand. Like, did they want to lose? Like, I don't, I don't understand. Well, especially when you're, it's. With someone who's a celebrity. Yeah. Like, it's going to be magnified. I will say that the prosecution of that trial was less than... hmm. Mm -hmm. It was, to be honest, the Crown was... Yeah. It... It was not their A game. No. No. It wasn't their A game. It was like their C C plus student. Mm. I And I was just like, what? Yeah. Anyway, sorry. Back to Bill. But yeah, I think, yeah, we have to, like... The, the whole court system being based on this, like, innocent until proven guilty thing makes it, Im- like, we should be coming from a place of believing women, right? So, yeah. But because of the way the court system is set up, they're automatically disbelieved. Well, especially when they're coming up against a major celebrity who was, whose brand was America's dad. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And so, I mean, I think for... I, I would say, if not one generation, if not two, we all grew up with Bill Cosby, totally. and we all grew up with him as that family. The like, yeah, fun dad. I would crazy like to know, you know what 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 Cookie. question always steps into my mind with this Bill Cosby thing. Out of everything, where the fuck was Camille? Where was his wife? Because he he was assaulting these women in his home. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Where the hell was she? Yeah, well, I mean, it's possible she didn't know, and I think uh, that there are a oh, lot of women. she knew. Yeah. Don't tell me that she, she knew. She knew. Because, first of all, a successful black man in the black community, rumors, mm. she knew. Yeah. And it's not like they come up with this as soon as they get, as they get famous. They have a track record from usually teenage years. Yeah. Right? So she knew. People talk. She knew. She at least knew there were rumors. And if she didn't know, I would call that incompetent. (laughs) And you know what? I, you know, and Camille and Bill Cosby are stalwarts in the black community in the States. Were. And I'm so glad. Unfortunately, it took a man, Hannibal Burris, to start this ball rolling. Mm -hmm. But the point is it started rolling. Mm -hmm. And good on you, Hannibal. Anyway, all this to say that you're right. Traumatic memories usually don't come back to you in a linear fashion. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And they come back to you at different points in time. Yeah, exactly. So only Lord knows what they're going to remember later. Yep. Exactly. And when you're trying to access those memories too that you suppress because the mind has this protective mm-hmm. mechanism that mm-hmm. suppresses these yep. these traumatic memories so that you don't have to relive them. Yeah. And so I don't know 
what are we supposed to do? And on top of that, how many times have we been hurt by somebody and wanted that person to reach out? Yeah. And say, well, yeah. And just so that we can think that we're okay. Like it's human. Yeah. Right? I just read an article in Vice last week about a woman whose um, rapist wrote, he, well, he called her on the phone out of the blue one day, like 12 years later, because he was in AA and he was in a 12 step program. So as part of trying to make amends. yeah, as part of the steps, mm. he called her and was like, "I was really drunk. I didn't know what I was doing." And because he called her out of the blue and blindsided her, she was like, "Oh, it's okay, it's okay." But she got off the phone with him and she was like, "You know what? It's not okay." And she sent him a text and she was like, "Never talk to me again. You did know you what you were doing and what you were doing wasn't okay. And I'm not okay. And it's not okay. You don't have my forgiveness." But and also, that's well still making an steps. excuse for his behavior. It's not well, taking that's what ownership. I was thinking. Yeah, exactly. I was like, I thought you were supposed to take ownership with your twelve steps. Yeah, exactly. But when you're like, oh, well, I was drunk. I didn't know what I was doing. Yeah, you do know what you're doing. You just don't care. Yeah, exactly. Well, and so that's what she said in her text to him. And then she and, blocked and, his and, number. And, and, and sexual assault is not a consequence of being drunk. Yeah. yeah. It has it has to be part it's of calculated. you. calculated. Yeah. And calculated first exactly. before. Exactly. Um, but, like, in the court system, too... You know, defense attorneys are there to defend their clients. The Crown is there to prosecute the crime. They're not there to advocate for the witnesses. So, like, the, the, the Crown attorney isn't anybody's lawyer, any of these women's lawyers, right? And we don't have a system where those women have someone that can, that can advocate for them in this way. But I thought they want to win cases. That's my thing. <laughs> like, yeah. I mean, if you, it's not like they didn't know. They yeah. interview these women over and over. Wouldn't you just, as a curious person, just be like, I wonder why these these fit a pattern. Maybe I should seek out some expertise. Yeah. Like I don't understand. Yeah. I, I guess I don't know. I, I don't know. I'm gonna I'm gonna put it to the crown. I think the crown really dropped the ball in that Giangameshi thing. Yeah. Why am I talking about Giangameshi? Bill <laughs> <laughs> Well, I think they I there's a I lot think, of parallels. Yeah, I think that they they need to... I think we need to reimagine what sexual assault trials look like. I think we need to understand what sexual assault is like. Yeah. Period. Yeah. So the violation of your body is one of the w chief ways to show power. Yep. Yeah. And, like, yep. I'm just tired of people talking about, well, you're not even cute enough for me to... Like, people are... are like, you're not, you're, not, you're not even cute enough for me oh, to rape. Oh, I know. That's I, disgusting. I couldn't have raped. That's that. disgusting. People, rape is about power. Yeah. It's not about the sex. Exactly. It's not what sex addicts do. It's about fucking power. It's exactly. about power. So anybody who... Any dude, usually, who feels powerless or wants to exert power over somebody... Usually rape is a good way of doing it. Yeah. It's historically, you know, <clears throat> effective. Totally. It's not like it's not like it just came up. No. No. Anyway. Well, so I can see why Bill Cosby doesn't want this expert witness. Bill Cosby. Because this is one of the best defense ways of getting somebody off. Yeah. So. I'm Bill, really interested to see how this goes. I yeah. don't see Bill Cosby getting out of this one. No. no. Yeah. I just I we're not we're not in these times anymore. Mm -hmm. Like, we're in a different time. Mm -hmm. First of all, the jury pool's already been tainted, so there's that. <laughs> if they're on Twitter. The Twitter. <laughs> no, actually, a lot of them aren't. They, part awesome. of the, the his awesome. the argument for it being race-based and having a disadvantage is because a lot of the jurors they picked were white, obviously. 
as any smart prosecution would do. Mm-hmm. Um, but also, and he's got like a couple of black people in there. But also, so many given and this is why it's hard for cases that are this big and this quote unquote important is because it's hard to find people who don't know anything about them. So a lot of people were just like, oh, like I know kind of like broad sweeping things and that's all I know. Mm-hmm. So. But how are you going to get jurors who are not on social media and don't know who Bill Cosby is? Well, I think I think you can find jurors that and, don't and know who diverse. Bill Cosby is. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, it's tricky. They're out there. Yeah, you can get you can find people who aren't on social media. Yeah, and oh, people who don't know who he is. Those I don't think the the Venn diagram of those people is very large. Yeah, yeah I don't. Yeah, yeah I yeah. really don't. So on you you you, you pick like the, the young kind of twenties early twenties yeah, people, people younger than us won't. And then the older is. people who aren't on social media. Yeah. yeah, fair enough. Okay. All right. Well, that does it for another episode of Bad and Bitchy. Yeah, you can follow us on Twitter at Bad and Bitchy on Instagram at Bad and Bitchy Pod, and on Facebook we are Bad and Bitchy Podcast. Um, you can also email us at Bad and Pod at gmail dot com. Bye. 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 Bye.